0: I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that the passage we're going to look at today in 1 Samuel chapter 17 is probably one of two stories in the Old Testament that almost anybody knows. The Exodus, I mean, we got Charlton Heston to thank for that, right? And then we've got Pixar's version or whoever did the the cartoon one my kids used to love watching. But then there's David and Goliath. And I mean, everybody knows about David and Goliath. I mean, we've used it as a metaphor in sports, whether that's Milan, Indiana, little podunk town in southern Indiana, taking on the superpower of Muncie Central and the Bearcats in the 60s that inspired the movie that everybody knows, right? The Hoosiers. Or whether even more recently we saw it with the little old nation of Croatia taking on France in the World Cup semifinals. But Goliath, David versus Goliath, isn't just a sports metaphor. It's a small business trying to take on a big business. It's, it's an individual standing against government. It, it, it crosses all kinds of aspects of our lives. But ironically enough, this story isn't about simply an underdog taking over, taking down an invincible foe. What we read in 1 Samuel 17 shows everyone... This, the God of Israel is alive and well. And that he will deliver his people through his anointed servant so that all the nations will know who he is. Only Israel serves the true and living God. And that by that stake in the ground that's planted visibly in front of all the nations, the hearts of those people would be drawn to this great God. God also has a purpose in this environment of First Samuel 17 to establish David's throne so that through David's greater offspring, God would rule the world and change the lives of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation because Jesus delivers us from an even greater enemy. Sin and death. The characters of this narrative are well known to those of you that know the scriptures. We have an evil enemy and a timid army in Israel. We have a concerned father in Jesse, and we have a jealous brother in Eliab. We have a doubting king in Saul, and we have a mocking opponent in Goliath. Everyone is paired with a contemporary in the narrative except David. He stands out from all others. A young man whose affections for God have given him a confidence to trust in God. Like Israel, we need a champion. We need a champion who is zealous for two things, and in this order. God's name, which means God's reputation, his fame, and second, for rescuing and delivering God's people. This is the fundamental need of every single person. Whether you recognize it or not, you need a champion. For some of us, it's getting to that next benchmark in our career. It's getting that grade to pass this class to get that degree or to graduate from high school. It's just, I want to make and be friends with this person. We're looking and we're trusting in something, and let me just say, that we see there really is only one champion that we should place our hopes in. So this morning, what we're going to do, the argument is that we need a champion who is zealous for two things, God's name and God's people. And then we have that champion in Jesus. I mean, it's a really simple text in that sense. <clears throat> My apologies. What we're going to do is we're going to work through the scenes that come in this passage, even though we have one point, and that is simply that we need a champion who's zealous for God's name and God's people. We're going to see how this plays out in three separate scenes. The narrative moves in verses 1 through 11, a scene from the battlefield. We are introduced to a wicked and impressive champion of the Philistines who mocks God and his people. And then we are transported from that battlefield to the behind the lines to a small town and a family in that town, a very pastoral environment. <clears throat> it's an old man who can't go to war. It's an old man who can't do his work. He thankfully has eight sons. His youngest is there tending his sheep, while his three older boys have been enlisted in the army of Saul. And here is Jesse, the aged Bethlehemite, who has an anxious heart for the well-being of his sons. And then as we are sent back to the battlefield, the rest of the story unfolds in verses 19 or 20 all the way through the end of the chapter. And so obviously that's going to be the longest point. I'm urging you to hang on. So let's look at the setting. The Philistines are aggressors. They invade the tribe of Judah's territory in verse 1. Saul musters his army in verse 2, and he meets them in the valley of Elah. And the geographical details that are given in verse 3 make it clear that this battle is going to be fought in wide-open territory. There won't be any opportunity for a sneak attack or any deceptive tricks. Everything is laid out in the valley before them. And then so much time is given in verses 4 through 10 to the Philistine champion. We're told about his incredible size, his armor, and his weapons. We don't know exactly how tall Goliath was. Scholars estimate he was 9 feet 9 inches or maybe over 10 feet tall. Now, for some of us, it seems a little far-fetched, unless you know Illinois' second most famous son. I'm not talking about Abraham Lincoln. You guys ever heard of a man named Robert Wadlow? Oh, let me give you some education about the great state of Illinois, of which I'm one of its proud sons. He was born in 1918 in Alton, Illinois, and when he was last measured in 1940, he was 8 feet, 11.1 inches tall. True. Look it up. It's there for you on the internet and Alton has a bunch of big furniture that draws people into their town off the interstate to look at great big chairs. Not that they were his. It's just kind of a touristy thing. So it's not that far-fetched, that someone could be that tall. You know, it's a petituary gland, probably. He could be a descendant of the giants, the sons of Anak, all the way through the Old Testament. You see these, these were the giants that terrified Israel when they were first introduced to the Promised Land, the giants that even Joshua couldn't drive out. He could be a descendant and was a descendant of them. But look at verses 8 through 10. Not only are we told about his impressive nature, his size, his armor, and his weapons, But we hear his heart. He is a proud, loud, and arrogant warrior. He disdains Israel for even showing up. He dared them, send out your champion, and we will have a duel. And the winner will be declared, and the other's armies will submit to them. I think that was more of a mocking thing than an actual terms of agreement. What nation is actually going to bet their enslavement upon the dealings of one man? Now, history tells us that sometimes they did, but I think the fact is afterwards what happens shows us that no one was really going to be holding to this. The purpose of all this that we read in these first ten verses is simply this. We meet someone who by his very nature both in word and in presence, is intended to terrify us. We are encountering someone who, based on his size, armaments, weaponry, and words, is a man to be feared. And as you look at verse 11, we're told it worked. Not only were the soldiers afraid, but so was Saul, Israel's champion. Remember, the man who stood excuse me head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel this man he's not dressed for battle he's not standing in front of Goliath ready to go toe to toe to him he's shaky so this is designed by the narrator to only increase our anxiety <clears throat> who will deliver Israel and so the narrator Excuse me. He gives us a break from the rising tension and he whisks us away some 15 miles from the front lines to the quiet home of Jesse. So you look at verses 12 through 18 and we're given a refresher on David's family and an update on his activity since we last saw him in chapter 16. From the time of his anointing, David has been. Ping ponging back and forth from Saul's court as a minister through music to care for the troubled king to caring for his father's sheep. Jesse's reached this ripe old age and David being the youngest is there at home taking care of the duties around the household. Ironically enough, if you're a middle child, I feel your pain. Nothing's spoken here about the four middle sons, right? This is the nature of being in the middle. You're always overlooked. It was my lot in life, we can commiserate together afterward all right but verse 15 makes it clear that the anointed king was splitting time between ministering to the troubled king and his aged father and this is a this is here's where some of what this story folds out and unfolds for us is designed to teach us something. That you and I, through the hard work and mundane responsibilities of the tasks that we do each day, can learn humility, responsibility, and faithfulness. David did. I mean, you think about it. This guy who had experienced the glories of, I don't think David was the only instrument up there playing a lyre. I don't think he was the only, only musician up there. He was probably a part of a group. But you think about it. He's been in the court, and now he's going out to the sh- to the fields to work as a shepherd. What does that demonstrate about his character? He wasn't full of himself. He didn't forsake his duties at home. He was truly a faithful son. I remember watching the funeral of Bush One, George H. W. There was a retired senator, Alan Simpson, who made this statement. <clears throat> Those who travel the high road of humility in Washington are not bothered by heavy traffic. All right? Let me say that again, and I'm going to drop out Washington. Those who travel the high road of humility are not bothered by heavy traffic. David stands out already as a man of humility, dependability, of faithfulness, of a willingness to care and fulfill his responsibilities. And I think this is instructed to us. Christian, we ought not to seek glory for ourselves. Another person, Jim Elliott, the famous missionary who gave his life to share the gospel with Indian tribes in South America, said this as a 20-year-old. Lord, make my way prosperous. Most of us would stop right there. But he goes on to say, not that I achieve high station, but that my life may be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. Oh, if only more of us would pray that way. More young people would set that as a priority for their life. And that we as brothers and sisters in Christ would set that example in this church. Now, verse 15 is interrupted by verse 16, because we have this quiet home between a father and son, and then we're reminded of what's taking place on a battlefield some 15 miles away. And we're told by the narrator that every morning and evening for 40 days straight, the champion of the Philistines came out and shouted his insults, his mocking invitation to the armies of Israel to challenge him in a duel. Now, I remember as a young kid, this isn't a good example. So, kids, if you're listening, maybe this would be the time to check out. Um, <clears throat> I remember being sent to a Christian camp as a young guy. And one of the preachers, he wasn't the only one that did this. This happened on more, one, more than one occasion. So, it shows you the sinfulness of my heart. But he was like, after preaching, he's like, we're not leaving until somebody comes forward for the invitation. And after a couple minutes of everyone just, I'm like, oh, I'll go. You know, like, someone's got to get this thing over with. I will go so that we can get to the snack shop because I want to get a candy bar, some ice cream. I want to play a game. That's the motivation I had as an unbeliever, okay? So can you imagine for 40 days, every morning, your wake-up call, and every evening, as the sun is setting, you hear this man screaming at you across the valley, like fingernails on a chalkboard. It would be so irritating, But no one challenges it, not even Saul. And I think that is designed to show us just how terrified the people were by this impressive champion. And then we bump back to verses 17 and 18, and we see the father's heart and the son's faithfulness. Jesse is burdened for his sons who were in Saul's army. Word doesn't travel fast there, and unlike our military today, there are families moving to and from the uh, the. Uh, the camp of the Israelites and the camp of the Philistines. You didn't have all the rations. You didn't have all the support and the supply lines. So families would go to the battlefront. They would give their sons supplies, refurbishments, all this kind of stuff. And so Jesse instructs David to take food for his brothers and a gift for their commander. Go see, quickly, quickly, he says, go and see how they're doing and bring back to me proof of life. That's what verses 17 and 18 do, and verse 19 reminds us David is going into a war zone as he sets off for the front lines, and the narrator, he draws us along to see what happens. And so as we move to verses 20 to 58, David leads us to the battlefield where he will prove that not only is he a faithful son in doing what he was sent to do rather than getting distracted by the glory of war and taking up a great seat where he could watch what would happen— David shows he's a faithful son, and he will also show he is a fearless champion. You'll notice in verses 20 through 22, he left early in the morning. And before he left, what does David do? But show responsibility by making sure the sheep were well cared for while he was gone. He covered the 15-plus miles from his home to the battle lines, and he arrives, ironically, just at that time in the morning where both armies are getting ready for war, and what we see, that there's chaos as this is all taking place. Only those who've been in battle can understand all the adrenaline, all the noise, all the activity that comes right before conflict. And so David doesn't get swept up in that but what we discover is that he sets everything aside gives it to the one who keeps the baggage he puts it in the responsible hands of the one who would get it to the commander and the one who would secure it and hold it in ready for his brothers and then he goes to seek his brothers in verse 22 and he greets them no doubt he's conveying to them here's what dad said he wants to know these things about you so let me ask his questions and dad also wants to know that he's been praying for you Every morning and every evening. Dad wants you to know that he loves you. And then look at verse 23. We won't read many from the passage because of its length, but this is an important verse. As he talked with them, behold. Notice how the writer of Samuel slows everything down here. The champion. The Philistine of Gath. Goliath by name. Came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. I mean, this has happened for 40 days, we were told, and 40 nights, twice a day. But it's all orchestrated so that our tension is brought. There is the moment where he comes out and he slows down to introduce us yet again with three clarifying statements about Goliath. And then he ends with this. Did, you, did this stand out when you read through this text this last week? And David heard him. Ooh. Man, I'm telling you, this is the point in the, in the story where things change. Because twice a day he's been ranting and twice a day Israel shrinks back to the, their camp and they're discouraged and everyone's afraid. Today will be a different day because God's man, the anointed king of Israel whose God's spirit is on, hears the taunts of God's enemy. And what we see here that David he stops everything after he hears this and we have to ask is the one who ministered to the king in his court is he the one who will become Israel's champion on the battlefield and he as as he describes Goliath's taunts we are told in verse 24 that again Israel's armies fled they were greatly afraid And then the narrator clues us in to what's been happening over these last 40-some days. He tells us that during this time, the soldiers are talking amongst themselves in verse 25 about Goliath and his show of force, his braggadocious nature. Have you seen this guy? He's enormous. He's terrifying. He's taunting us, and he enjoys it. Did you guys know that Saul had made an offer to anybody who took him on and won, that he would, he would marry him to his daughter, he would bestow upon him riches, he would, he would actually excuse his family from all um, government responsibilities. No more taxes. You wouldn't have to serve the king in any capacity. Your land wouldn't be taxed. Life is going to be good for the champion of Israel. Did you know about that? Are you going to go? Well, I'm not going. And the word just keeps trickling through the armies of Israel. The narrator is cluing us in onto this, but if you notice verse 26 and 27, David has no idea that the guys have been telling this. He has no idea about Saul's offer. And so he he asks, when as soon as he hears this, David's like, this has to be responded to. This isn't something you can ignore. I can't unhear what I just heard. This guy has not only mocked, Israel's armies, but Israel's living God. What's going to be done about this? You see how everything changes. The action is so slow up to this point and everyone's timid except for Goliath and then David shows up and because the Spirit of God is on him, he is ready. What's going to be done? David then learns what these soldiers had been talking about. He can't believe what he's heard. He is the first person in the passage that gives us a picture of hope. His question isn't motivated by prophets, but a zeal for the reputation of Israel and her God. And he stands in a stark contrast between the army and himself because for 40 days and nights, these soldiers had effectively heard this and allowed it to paralyze them. No one is Daring to oppose Goliath. Yet as soon as David hears that he is righteously indignant and declares action must be taken now, and if no one else, then it will be him, is what is implied. I want you to think of it. What is going on in this text? What is it that David's actions demonstrate to us? Well, it's simple. David is showing us that there is a reason that when God's spirit rests on his man, that man will be motivated by God's glory and not his own. It was true of Saul in chapter 11, and now it just erupts out of David's heart and his mouth. This afternoon or this week, I'd encourage you to read Psalm 27. Now, it's not a psalm talking about this time in David's life, but it is a really good reminder to read it and meditate on the fact that God, when God is with you, when God is for you, who can be against you? Paul tapped into that in Romans 8. Israel's army lacked faith, which is why they only saw this situation as impossible. You know why? Because just as we sang a few moments ago, they forgot the promises of God and their identity as his people. And when that happens to us as Christians, woe is me, for I am undone. And it's not because of my sin, it's because of these circumstances. And where is God? Why won't he show up and do something for me today? Why won't he act? What, what, what can come of this? I, I can't do anything. They forgot God's promises to go before them and put enemy armies to flight. But David He saw everything and interpreted it all through faith, the eyes of faith. He says, this man is our enemy. He is a Philistine. And then he repeats it a second time. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. And what's unique about all of Israel's neighbors, the other nations, the Egyptians, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, they were all practiced circumcision. But the Philistines didn't. And so this was a disparaging statement that David makes. He's speaking of derision, this unclean man. I don't care that their, their army is modernly outfitted. I don't care that they have controlled the market on iron and bronze and weaponry and that in Israel, only our blacksmiths we are, anytime we need an instrument sharpened or metalwork done, we've got to go down and pay the Philistines exorbitant prices. They won't let us have access to these resources. I don't care. This man is evil because he has rejected God. David also says, not only is he their enemy, but look at his actions in taunting Israel and her God. David, David says, our God is living. He's not a statue that we carried into camp. He's not lifeless. He's the living God. Nahash, the Ammonite, remember him in chapter 11, he intended to bring disgrace on all Israel by blinding the men in one eye. In David's eyes, this uncircumcised Philistine has disgraced Israel, and he must be dealt with. But not everyone, as you look at verses 28 through 30, not everyone was happy or excited or appreciated David's zeal for the Lord and Israel. You see, like Joseph before him, David faced opposition from his brother. And what I think is interesting is from this point forward, from verse 28 all the way down to about verse 45, three times David is opposed. He's opposed by his brother, he's opposed by his king, and then he's opposed by the enemy. And what you see is each time David has to respond to objections or opposition What he says gets a little bit longer each time. And we learn a little bit more about his character and about his faith. And so I want to bring your attention to look at verses 28 through 30. Angered by David's words, Eliab verbally attacks him, and he does it personally. He lies. He knows why David is there. David told him why he was there. Dad sent me. Eliab, as the oldest of the sons, was responsible. Now that Jesse was old and could no longer fight, and at an age, in fact, where even doing running the ranch, as it were, was too much for him, it fell on Eliab as the oldest to make sure all of that stuff was taken care of. So he knew how many sheep they had, and he knew the processes that would have been put in place to make sure while David was away, the sheep were being taken care of. So all that Eliab is trying to do here in this moment it's embarrassed David in front of all the other soldiers. He's trying to shame him. But he doesn't just stop there. He then takes the place of God in pronouncing his divinity. He knows David's heart. David's proud and wickedness. It's led him to abandon his responsibility. It's He's attempting to shame and embarrass David in the eyes of everyone present, but in a twist of irony, we learn something about Eliab that only God knew in chapter 16 his heart. That heart that didn't qualify him to be God's man is now on full display for the rest of us. He's jealous of his brother, he's angered by his brother. And God sees what's in the heart. We look on the outside, and here we see, actually, that Eliab is mirroring the same tactics of Goliath. Did you notice that? What does Goliath do? I'm going to show up. I'm going to try to intimidate you. I'm going to say things. I'm going to challenge you. Haughty eyes and a proud tongue. I'm going to humiliate you. And it's David's own brother who's acting like the giant But as you look at verses 29 through 30, David, he has a wise response to this. And I think this is just really practical stuff for us too. Whether it's online or in person, when someone starts attacking you, and you know the truth, take take an example out of David's playbook. Eliab attacked his character. Eliab said, you are irresponsible. And your heart is wrong. David knew the truth, though. And we, as the reader, we've been clued into the truth. He was a really responsible young man, wasn't he? However old he was, whether he was a teenager or not. The point is, we were given a lot of detail to see that David took his responsibilities to his dad, to the family, by taking care of the sheep, and to his brothers. His responsibilities to the Lord, he took it all seriously, And yet, he doesn't respond by fighting fire with fire. What does he say? I'll paraphrase it. What have I done to offend you now? Apparently, he'd been in this place before with his older brother. I'm asking about something very important. David had learned that a soft answer turns away wrath. And he demonstrates self-control in this moment by simply turning around and walking away. I need to find out if what i 've heard is true, and so he begins asking others, You see what David had learned by being a shepherd he had learned to be patient he 'd learned to be humble isn 't this preparing him well to lead god 's people and so the same idle soldiers who spread news of saul 's offer they begin to spread word of David's indignation and his eagerness to act. And those words come to the ears of the king, and David is summoned to Saul in verse 31. Notice his first words in verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. He's comforting the king yet again. I mean, a young man is speaking truth to power, not in a way to shame him, but put him at ease. I'll be your champion. This is no big deal. I mean, to Saul it is. Look at what he does. For the second time, as I said a moment ago, David faces opposition. Saul says, you're not capable of this. You're but a youth. This man has been doing this since he was a youth. He's a trained professional. This is going to be a train wreck for you, David. I mean, this isn't going to just leave you as an amputee. You know the old Monty Python thing? The guy loses an arm. He loses another arm. He loses his legs. Flesh wounds. This is not that. You will die. He's questioning, not David's character like his brother did, he's questioning David's ability. And for a second time, as David faces opposition, he has to explain himself. Both Eliab and Saul failed to see something about David. This isn't an impetuous youth. This isn't a loud teenager. I can do that. This is a man Upon whom the Spirit of God rested on. And they failed to see that. So David has to rehearse for him in verses 34 and 35 his experiences of rescuing or delivering sheep from lions and bears. And he's absolutely confident that the living God would rescue or deliver him from Goliath. The young shepherd of his father's sheep says he is capable to lead God's people by defeating their enemy. And again, we can learn from David's example. Not just that a soft answer turns away wrath. Not just that because you know truth about yourself, you don't have to go and fight everyone who says a lie about you. But he also shows us that he remembered his past experiences with God and used them to encourage himself to trust God in the present. I wonder if we fail to do that sometimes. If we're here in the moment of uncertainty, of being stretched beyond what we think we can do and handle, if, if we wouldn't be greatly helped by recalling God's work in our lives in the past and letting us just let those thoughts fill our minds and our hearts so that we will have confidence that he is the same yesterday and today and forever. He who delivered will be faithful to do it yet again. And think about this. Think about this. Just on a really practical side, God demonstrates such care for his creation that Jesus says he knows the number of sparrows, or he he knows when a sparrow falls, right, to the earth, that he feeds the birds of the fields. God is that intimately aware of his creation, and then God, as creative creating us in his image. We have instincts, don't we? If we have pets, we try to take care of them. Some of us may actually neglect our own well-being for the sake of our pets. But we have this innate desire to do good to the livestock or the pets. And both of those things should be coupled together in our thoughts to show us something about the character of God. How much more value are we than they? If God's heart is for his people, will he not meet them where they are? Will he not care for them and deliver them? I think it's important for us to say that David's not trying to backdoor what he says to Saul in order to get Saul's daughter in marriage or a place in Saul's court. David is not interested in the prize for being a champion. He is interested only in his God and his people. David's zeal is for the Lord and not power and status. That's seen by the fact that notice he never mentions anything to Saul about what the king had offered to the champion. Only that this wicked man has divided God and his people. And David is again affirming his confidence that as God delivered him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver him from the hand of this giant. And Saul is quite... I don't know how to interpret this, honestly. I was really disappointed. Like, really, that's all you're going to say? Go, and the Lord be with you. I mean, is that Saul, like, okay, you convinced me? Or is that a king who recognizes, this man has the spirit of God upon him, the spirit that I lost? Or is that Saul, a king, saying, okay, go, And I hope the Lord's with you because nobody else is going. I mean, I don't know how to interpret it. It's really disappointing about its brevity and that there is no accompanying commitment. God is with you and so are we, David. We will walk that field with you together. We will meet that giant together. As bold as Saul was in chapter 11, we see him as timid here. But then Saul, what he doesn't say is troubling, but then what he does next is just kind of ridiculous. Let's just remember the fact, this man stood head and shoulders above everybody else, and he's going to put his armor on this youth? I mean, seriously? Your kids ever dress up in your clothes? I remember Grace walking around the house in Natalie's shoes when she was like two or three, and there's like that much of a foot space behind her. You know, it's just, she doesn't have big feet, my wife. Uh, I mean, it's okay. Get out of the hole, James. Okay. Not only does Saul's armor not fit David, but it becomes embarrassingly obvious that David has never worn armor. He doesn't know how to fight in it. He's like, let let me just say this once again, Saul. I wasn't wearing this stuff when I had to rescue sheep from a lion or a bear. God was with me. He's all that I need. And so David, we're told there was a brook that ran through this valley, he goes down and he selects five smooth stones, and he sets off across the valley. while well, the armies of the Philistines are over here, and the armies of the, the Hebrews are behind him, he's got nothing but a staff. His stones are in his pouch. sling is there. He's in all of the gear that would say, "You're ready to go be a shepherd, not a champion." And this is where all this builds to this one point in verses 41 through 54. As the two champions, one supposed champion, approach one another in the middle of the valley, we see in verses 41 through 44 that the giant once again will spew his hatred, not only for Israel, not only for her God, but as he gets closer and sees this is a youth, he curses David He invokes the Philistine gods of Dagon and others in a curse. May they curse you, David. He says, do you really think you can defeat me? Your stick is a great thing if you were beating a dog, but look at me, boy. Do the the armies of Israel take me so lightly that they make a joke of me by sending a youth out to face me? Is this really how you see this situation playing out, David? Let me just tell you something. I will kill you, boy. And to add insult to injury, your body will lay here. It won't be given a proper burial in your family tomb. It won't be mourned over. No, what will happen is the animals and the birds of the field will feast on you. That's your future, son. What does David do? In verses 45 through 47, again, as I said, his responses get longer and longer as the text goes on, and we see more of his character and conviction. Let's read what David says, beginning in verse 45. David says this, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you today, Goliath. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. David has no sword. Don't let that be lost on you. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly that's watching this may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. This young man has more conviction of knowing who God is and more character than all his elders. He loved God. He no doubt had communed with him through song and scripture in those many days and nights in the fields taking care of the sheep. He had seen God work in his own past and he had no delusions that God would not do the same. He was convinced. He was jealous for God's reputation. And he says that I have absolute conviction that God will preserve me against all odds. And in fact, we see the spiritual overtones in David's response. Goliath, you're here with physical weapons. We serve two different gods. You mock me for bringing a staff. But your weapons are useless. Don't you know that I'm coming to you with the name of the Lord of hosts? The God of Israel's armies whom you have defied. And then he describes exactly what will happen down to the detail. The Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And the bodies of Goliath and the Philistine army will feed the birds and the beasts. And David gives two reasons why all this is going to happen. And notice, none of them are about trickery. None of them are about sleight of hand. None of them have anything to do with a human perspective at all. As I said last week, what we see in these two chapters, 16 and 17, is that the sovereign God of the universe is intimately involved in both the physical world and the spiritual world. And he imposes himself once again. David says, I, All this is going to happen so that all the earth will know that God, Israel's God is the only one true God. And secondly, all the world will know that the Lord saves by himself. I mean, you're impressive, Goliath, you're a giant. I'm sure you've got stories, and I'm sure you've got experiences, and I'm sure the long list of those who have died at your hand, it's a long list. Let me just tell you, that's why God brought me out here, because I look helpless. I look unprepared. Too young for this. I don't have the skills for this. I'm really here just to make a name for myself, according to my brother. All the reasons why this contrast looks so extreme is so that everyone will know God saves, not man. And because you are fighting the Lord, our God, he will give you into our hand. You will fall face down before our God just as Dagon, your God, fell before our God's ark. Your head will be separated from your body just as Dagon's head was separated from his body. This takes us all the way back to chapter 5. And this, I don't know who said this, faith isn't measured by how little or how much feeling we have, but by submitting to our Father's work in our life. The entire chapter has built to this point in verses 48 through 51. Events unfold just as David said they would. The giant in all his gear, perhaps he was a little slower in rising up, but he comes to meet David. David runs towards him. And then he struck the giant who falls face down. And then David runs to his body while he's incapacitated, takes the giant's own sword and removes his head. Apparently, the armor-bearer, like the rest of the Philistines, fled. And having gone to great lengths to contrast Goliath's invincibility with David's helplessness, the narrator highlights the fact that God's way of salvation often looks different than ours. And this, all this detail, building to this moment where the fight is short, I mean, putting a, a stone in a sling and getting that thing spinning and then letting it go... Some of the guys that I read, they said that could travel up to 70 miles an hour. And it hits the giant in that weakness where he's got a helmet of bronze, he's covered with all this chain mail, he's got even stuff over his legs, he's got a a guy carrying a a body shield in front of him, and he's got a a javelin and, and and a spear and a sword. He's got all the right tools, but he didn't think that this would be the outcome. And that stone sinks into his forehead, and it knocks him unconscious, and David takes advantage of the moment. All this is to highlight what we first were told about in 1 Samuel 2 in Hannah's song. If it's been a while since you've read that portion of 1 Samuel, let me just remind you that she prayed and celebrated the God who gave her a son, who changed her future for the better. And her song hints that there's a champion coming from God who will demolish the structures of the world, who will bring justice to the ends of the earth, and that is partially fulfilled in this very battle. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Israel's victory here through David because her song also connects the beginnings of creation with the ends of creation. And what it reminds us is that after Adam sinned, his disobedience brought sin into the world that God promised to give the woman a son who would crush the serpent's head, who would restore purity, holiness, in creation. And so what we have here is a connection between Adam and his son Seth, Noah and his son, Shem, Abraham and his son, Isaac, Israel and his son, Judah, and David and his greater son, Jesus. It's Jesus, not David, who will fulfill all aspects of King Yahweh's promise in the garden and through Hannah's prayer. You see, Jesus will defeat the serpent and deliver us from the curse of sin and death. There are so many connections between this passage and what we've seen to this point, not only in Samuel but in the Old Testament. Just follow along. this is so mind-blowing. There's three heads in First Samuel so far that have fallen. There's Dagon who is felled by God. There's Goliath, who is also felled by God through David. And then we're told and we look forward to a, the serpent who will be felled by God through Jesus. There are three arm armors in this. You, you see, the, Israel, or the Philistine god Dagon was like half fish and half man. He had scales of a fish on his body. Don't lose that. Goliath, his armament is like scales overlapping as it's described. And what does a serpent have but Scales. And then you have three spaces in this. Dagon, who falls in that space between his place in this temple and the, and the people. He falls onto the threshold. Goliath, where does he fall? In the valley, the space between two armies. And then what about Jesus? Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth on a cross. And whether that cross took the form of an X or it looks like one of these up here, that kind of picture a sword being plunged into the earth, God said it is finished in Jesus. Sin and death, the enemy, the serpent, has been destroyed. And what what happens after David works this great victory, the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout. I don't know if they were all sitting down, what's going to happen, passing around popcorn, or if they were packing things up, wondering, this is going to go badly. But they are motivated now to finally get into the battle, and they chase the Philistines all the way back to these two major cities. They kill them along the way, and then they come back and plunder their camp. So as we conclude with this, like Saul and his army, we are often afraid of our enemies. But after Jesus' victory, our champion, we are right to join the fight and plunder the enemy. Paul told the Christians in Rome that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power to the spirit of his holiness by his resurrection from the dead, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Romans 1, 3 and 4. And we as Christians, we believe this good news that Jesus died for us, that he defeated our enemies, and that he is Lord of all. Paul would later write that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God himself is the one crushing Satan Just as he used David to defeat Goliath, and just as he used Jesus to defeat the serpent, he will empower us. And we have been called to join the fight. And we know that every victory comes from the Lord. So how is it that you and I are to engage in spiritual warfare? Because let's be clear, we're not walking around with swords, and we're not beheading anybody this week. All right? What David does here is unique for him, and we are not called to emulate that, to repeat it, to imitate it, to try to find a Goliath in our lives to kill. That's not it at all. We're the army of Israel. We're, we're sitting behind the lines, quaking in our boots. Jesus is our champion, and because he has won, we now have boldness to follow where he leads. That's, that's the where we fit into this story. So how is it that we are to wage spiritual warfare? Well, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, that we are to put on the armor of Christ. We are to wear the armor of our champion. It fits us, unlike David's with Saul's. The armor that God has provided for us, because this is a spiritual war, and the armor and weapons that we are called to use are spiritual. They're not physical. Jesus fought with words and with his life on the cross. We fight with weapons like this. Faith. Peace. And the words of God. Not with spears. Not with slings and stones. And yet while all that is absolutely true. That in Christ we have victory. I'm not so naive to think. That living life in this world is a struggle. And so how does that. How do we live with that tension? Well if. Christ has done it all, why this then? And what am I supposed to do? Why is it that we're struggling? Well, let me just remind you of some things. David may be at the pinnacle of his life to this point in, verse, in chapter 17, but everything changes for him in chapter 18. He becomes hated by Saul and hunted by Saul. In fact, over 20 chapters pass between his anointed and when all of Israel gets behind him as king. But we don't even have to go back that far to see that because you're anointed by God's Spirit, because you have been born again, Christian, life is going to be hard. Look at Jesus, the Son of God. He came. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He gave his life on a cross. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He suffered in spite of who he was and the purposes that he was called to do. What does that show us? The Christian life is a struggle. And daily we must pick up our cross and follow Jesus. We need to deny ourselves. We need to resist the schemes of the devil. And the good news is this. We are facing a defeated foe. Amen? His doom was sealed at Calvary. And the wrath that we feel from Satan is that of someone who's lashing out. Peter describes him as a roaring lion walking about seeking or prowling about seeking whom he may devour. But I would say this, his anger is real, but his roar is more like a death rattle. He has been defeated in Christ because like Goliath, his head has been crushed In these scenes, battlefront, Bethlehem, back to the battlefront, we've seen that we need a champion, and we have a champion in Jesus. One who cares for two things beyond a shadow of doubt, the reputation of God and the care of his people. Brethren, you are in the best hands you could ever be in Christ. Lord, we come to you today knowing that you are uniquely qualified to the role that God has sent you to. You have first-hand experience with God's saving power. You trusted and obeyed the Father, even when under incredible testing. And therefore, God has given you a name. He has given you a reputation. He has given you a fame that is above everyone and anyone else. And so, Lord, it is in Christ alone that we look. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. And we thank you that we have a champion who not only defeats our enemies, but who leads us in this world. And we pray that you would give strength to your people in all these things. Give us wisdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.